I now turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon today, which is just one verse as we last week considered Joel 2, 28-32, and promised we'd dig more into verse 32 this week. That's just what we are going to do. We're going to turn to Joel chapter 2, and I'll be reading here verse 32, and then we'll dig more into that verse today. So this is God's holy word as he gave to the prophet Joel. And so having come by inspiration of God, we know that it is the infallible, the inerrant word of the living God. So let's attend with reverence to its reading again. Joel 2.32 And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. May we pray. Lord, indeed, we do call upon your name. And we pray that you would grant that even as we have just read your word and as it is now to be exposited, we pray that you would bless its reading and exposition, that we each might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ Jesus and changed by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, all of Scripture is inspired by God. He's the primary author who speaks to us through the human authors. The Holy Spirit so superintended the writing of Scripture that though each book is in the words and the writing style of its human author, every word, indeed, as Paul tells us in Galatians, or indicates in Galatians, every letter of the original text is the very word of God. Part of Paul's argument in Galatians is that that God did not say seeds as of many, but seed as of one, which is Christ. And so there, even if you change just two little letters in the Hebrew text, we would know that, that that would change all of Paul's arguments and undermine it, in fact. And so he's relying upon the fact that, it, that the word of God was faithful to the letter. So we understand that what we have in Scripture is what God intended to be there. It's what he wanted to communicate. And that means every verse of the Bible is important because every statement, every sentence comes from the Lord himself. Now that said, there are certain verses which stand out because of how important they are for people to believe, for believers to know and understand. You know, it's obvious that the statement Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is maybe a bit more important to remember than that the messenger of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, asked the people of Jerusalem, does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst? You might want to make sure that you remember that Christ Jesus came into the Lord to save sinners uh, before you worry about memorizing those other verses. Certain verses are of greater importance for us to know. Joel 2.32 is one such verse. Uh, Just to pick another verse at random, Uh, Numbers 3.23 says, The families of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward. It's good for you to know that. That verse came from God. It's important. 
but it might be a little more important that you know the words contained in Acts 4.12, referring to Christ, there is no other name than the name of Jesus that is under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Similarly, it's important that people would know Joel 2.32, and particularly the statement in that verse, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this morning we're going to break that verse down. That's why I didn't just try to cram all this into last week's sermon. We're going to break this down and look a little bit more in depth at it, and we'll consider God's promise, number one. Number two, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? And then third, who is it that calls on the name of the Lord? So let's just dive in. First, what is God's promise in this verse? The main promise is what we see there, and it shall come to pass, the beginning of the verse, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Joel also says, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. So there's a promise of deliverance. So we see there salvation, deliverance, promised for those who call on the name of the Lord. We'll get to the meaning of Mount Zion and Jerusalem here in a bit. But for now, let's, let's concentrate on these words. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So to begin with, the promise is certain. That's one thing that we see. It, it shall come to pass. In the Hebrew, this phrase, it shall come to pass, actually is one word. On the page, it looks a lot like the covenant name of God, Yahweh. That's because both the Lord's name and this verb are versions of the verb to be. God's name is spelled in the Hebrew yod Hey vav Hey. If you want to transliterate it, you might write it in our alphabet as Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. And this verb here, it shall come to pass, is spelled with three of those letters. Just drop the first letter from it and you get Hey vav Hey. So H-W-H or H-V-H. It's in what we call the perfect tense indicating a definite completion, it will definitely be, you might read it that way. So then we ask, well, what will definitely be? This fact, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, in, in case you're wondering, you know, maybe you're a grammar nerd, uh, saved there, it shall, it shall be saved there, uh, is uh, not in the same tense as that verb, it shall come to pass. It's in what's called the imperfect tense, but that doesn't mean that the promise is uncertain. So we have the certainty in the first verb there. It simply means that uh, the end is unlimited. The salvation of those who call on the Lord's name does not end. And the fact that, that people get saved is something that will continue for an indefinite period of time. Also, the imperfect tense may be there to show that the salvation is contingent on something else, namely the certainty of calling on the name of the Lord that it shall come to pass. Only those who call 
on the name of the Lord will be saved. But for those who do call, it is a certainty. We'll get to the meaning of calling on the name of Yahweh shortly. How, how do you do that? How do you know that you have certainly done that? But before we do that, what does it mean to be saved, we might ask? Saved from what? Salvation implies that there's a danger, and you need to be removed from that danger. I think of Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he, he talked about this uh, uh, danger that the sinner is in, and talked about it being like being suspended over a fire by a tiny little spider web. So saved from what? Well, in context, we see, as we showed last time, that Joel is talking about the present age, the, the period from Christ's first coming to his return, or including the first verse of the next chapter, we could even see maybe the return from exile, from the Babylonian exile on to Christ's return. An age which will end with what Joel calls the great and awesome or great and terrible day of the Lord. So in other words... To put it shortly, Judgment Day. To be saved means to be apart, to be set apart, to be protected from God's righteous wrath that is coming upon the earth for sin. To be saved from the judgment that's coming upon the nations that we'll read about in chapter 3. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from that wrath to come. Think of John the Baptist, when the Pharisees came out to him, and he said, who told you to flee the wrath to come? That's what we're talking about here, that wrath that is to come. So that brings us then to our second consideration. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? How can you be sure that you will be saved from that wrath to come? Well, the definitive passage for that really is found in what we read earlier this morning in Romans 10. In Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice the result is exactly the same as the result that we see here in Joel 2.32. You call the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The New King James Version, the translation there, that, that that's almost word for word from the Greek, just making uh, some minor adjustments of word order to make it make more sense in English. So basically, there are two elements to what Paul's telling us to do there in Romans 10.9. Number one, confess the Lord Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, to confess him is to declare him to be what he truly is. So in translations like the English Standard Version, for example, we find it rendered something like, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To confess the Lord Jesus means to confess him for who he is, that he is Lord. So there's lordship implied there. It's not just to confess Jesus, but the Lord Jesus you have to confess. In part, that means confessing him as your Lord, as your master. But there's far more to what Paul is saying that we'll get to shortly here, is confessing him as Lord. The other element of that 
verse, though, first is the, the other condition for salvation, in other words, is to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. He was dead, and he was raised, and he's alive to this day. Well, of course, Romans 10.9 comes after everything that came before it in Romans. Can you follow that logic? So, if we go back to the beginning of Romans, Romans 1.4, for example, Paul says Jesus' resurrection declared, showed forth, that he is the Son of God, just as he claimed to be. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus proves his deity. Another way of looking at it is that we see throughout Scripture that God gives certain miracles to people to, uh, to show that they're speaking the truth about him. And so Jesus' miracles proved that he was speaking the truth about God, and ultimately his resurrection uh, trumped them all because he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection. He told his disciples, I will lay down my life for my sheep and I will take it up again. And if he's the one doing the resurrecting, as well as the one doing the dying, then he has to be God. Only God can bring life from non-life. It proves that Jesus was telling the truth about God even when he claimed to be God. Before Abraham was, I am, for example. And notice what the result is of confessing the Lord Jesus and believing in his resurrection and all of the things that it proves and implies. The result is the same result as calling on the name of the Lord. You will be saved. If you call in the name of Yahweh, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Unless we miss that fact that Paul is really talking about the same thing here, Paul points it out explicitly connecting his declaration in Romans 10.9 to Joel 2.32 as he goes on with the following verses. He writes in Romans 10, 9 through 13, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Lord willing, in the not-too-distant future, I'll have an opportunity to preach through Romans. And we'll be able to exposit that passage there even more thoroughly. But for now, notice that the, the four at the beginning of Romans 10.13 is important. The previous verses are true because God's promise in Joel 2.32 is true. In other words, confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in his resurrection and all that it implies is the same thing as calling on the name of Yahweh. And Paul uses in that passage the same Greek word, kurios, for, for Lord, as Jesus' title in verse 9, and to translate the name of Yahweh from Joel 2.32 in verse 13. Jesus is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. And the next time Jehovah's Witnesses are at your door, you might point this passage out to them. Show them 
There is no way that this passage, that Romans 10, 9 through 13, makes any logical sense unless Jesus is the same Lord that's spoken of in verse 13, which is a quote of Joel 2.32, where the name of Jehovah appears. Therefore, to call on him in faith is to meet, that is to call on Jesus in faith, is to meet the very standard that is set in Joel 2.32. That if you want to be saved, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's really what it means to call on the name of the Lord, to confess the Lord Jesus in faith. So that brings us to then our third consideration about Joel 2.32. Well, who does that? Who is it that calls on the name of the Lord? Joel says, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. This salvation, this deliverance occurs in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. As we saw last time, that's not a way of talking about two different places. It's the same place, but it's a, a, an emphatic and there. might translate it as even. So does that mean that the only people who can ever be saved have to call on the name of the Lord from Jerusalem? Do you need to get on a plane and go to Jerusalem? Call on the name of the Lord there in order to be saved? No. The answer, of course, is no. In Galatians 4, 22 through 24, Paul writes, It is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which... Things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. I don't have time this morning to pull everything we can out of those verses there, but if you want to hear more, I actually did preach on this in the past. I think it was May 17th, 2020 on Sermon Audio. You can find a sermon on that passage. But Paul's point is that, that Ishmael and Isaac are symbolic. He's not saying that these weren't things that really happened in history. They, they really are. Uh, but he's saying that, that you can use that, you can look at that symbolically as being kind of like the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New. So Ishmael is like the Old Covenant. Isaac is like the New. Earthly Israel, of the flesh, under the Old Covenant, was not in the full freedom of adult sonship but was, as Paul says in Galatians 3.24, like an underage son placed under the authority of a tutor. And here in Galatians 4, then Paul likens those Jews who refuse Christ to Ishmael. Those who reject Christ are like Ishmael. Ishmael was Abraham's son according to the flesh. As we would say today, he carried his DNA if you'd done a DNA test on Abraham and Ishmael, you would have said, oh, wow, this is a father and a son. But he was not the son of the promise. He was not the son promised by God, who would be the heir of the covenant. God said, in Isaac, your seed shall be named. Then Paul expands the comparison by saying in Galatians 4, 25 through 28, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. So, in other words, Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, is kind of like 
Hagar, kind of like Mount Sinai, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So among other things, there's a lot that you could unpack from those verses, but among other things we see that the believer in Jesus Christ is said to be of the heavenly Jerusalem. Likewise, Hebrews 12, 18-24 says of believers in Christ, For you have not come to the mountain which may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who had heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. He's referring there to the Israelites just having been rescued from Egypt, and they go to to Mount Sinai, and they hear and see all of these things, and they hear God's very voice speaking the Ten Commandments, and what do they say to Moses? Moses, could you go up on the mountain and talk to God for us? This is terrifying. He says, you haven't come to that earthly mountain. He says, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. That was the command in Moses' day. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you, now the author is talking to Christians, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So the author of Hebrews says, you Christians are part of a heavenly Jerusalem. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.16 that believers are the temple of the living God. You are God's dwelling place. Deliverance, in other words, then comes from among Christians. Or rather, we should say, it comes from Christ by way of his church. He's the deliverer, but he brings the message of deliverance to the world through his disciples. Christians preaching the gospel. Thus, as Paul says in Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us all. So back to Joel 2.32 then. The phrase, as the Lord has said, uh, reinforces that this is a definite declaration of God. It is definitely true that this salvation comes from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. it, It comes by Christ through his church. He has declared it, it shall be done. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved as salvation proceeds from Zion. And then we get even more clarity with the last clause, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Not everyone gets saved. That's a hard thing for our culture to take. 
but rather we see a remnant of Jews and Gentiles are saved because the Lord calls them. We might think of scriptures like Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. That call there speaks of what we call the general gospel call, which goes out to the whole world, but few who hear the call are chosen to heed it. Those few chosen are effectually called. That's the kind of calling that Paul talks about in Romans 8.30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. That effectual calling is what Joel is talking about here. This salvation is among those whom the Lord has called. Salvation is for those whom God calls, and they are given hearts to believe, and therefore they will themselves call on the name of the Lord by confessing the Lordship of Jesus Christ in faith. God has promised that all who call upon his name will be saved. To call upon Jesus in faith, to call upon the Lord, are the same thing. The Lord has entrusted that message to the church, which he is empowered to preach it effectually. The church issues that call from God to believe in Jesus Christ. And those whom God effectually calls will believe the message and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So our exhortations this morning are simply these. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if you have not. Trust in Him. Name Him as Lord. Believe in His resurrection and everything that it implies. Especially that He is the Lord God in the flesh. And then preach that message. Share it with the world around you. God will use it to bring His remnant to salvation in Christ. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, build us up in faith that we might trust in Jesus all the more each day. And we pray that you would embolden us to proclaim him faithfully to the world around us. We ask that we would be used as your instruments for bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth and that you would effectually call more and more people from out of the culture around us, that we might see more people who name Jesus as Lord and believe in their hearts that you raised him from the dead. For we know that to call upon the name of the Lord is to be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.